Good morning. This sashin, this beautiful sashin that we're having out here with all the elements. The elements have been very cooperative. Thunder and rain and dragon tails whipping around. (laughs) This sashin is a dialogue. We're having a conversation in this sashin with Shakyamuni Buddha. We're having a dialogue, we're referring to Buddha's original sashin that he did all by himself. Sashin means gathering of the mind, so it's the original gathering of the mind, Shakyamuni Buddha, and we are in communication with Shakyamuni Buddha about that. And one of the reasons that we've been focusing on this writing that we chanted today, for all of you who are just joining We've been chanting this every day. Fukan Zazengi, the wide universal principles, guidelines for Zazen. We've been chanting this because it's also in conversation. So this is Dogen Zenji's conversation with original enlightenment. And he wanted to go back to the source to talk about this with Buddha. And then bring it to Japan, to his people. So bring this original conversation from India and China to Japan. And then, by great good fortune, it's landed here for us. So we are part of this conversation. We're equal participants in this conversation. All these ancestors are talking to us. They, were, they, were, they had us in mind. They were trying to save something for us and take really good care of it so that it would still be in good shape when we got here to hear about it. So getting it to um, a way that people could understand is part of what Dogen Zenji was up to. Um, And he, he revised it several times in his lifetime as he learned how to dialogue with people. So as we discussed, when Shakyamuni Buddha first woke up, he um, pondered for a while. So the story we have is that he didn't teach. No one really knows why, but for some reason he didn't start teaching right away. And then his teaching evolved. Although from the very beginning it was the same statement, but in many, many thousands of words, the same statement When I, Shakyamuni Buddha, wake up, you all are awake. To be totally awake is to see the awakening everywhere. He kept saying that over and over. And then he gave techniques for people to use if that was kind of a difficult statement. So that's called compassion. Wisdom is seeing it's all awake. Compassion is all Maybe you should practice like this. I have to not look at Gail because straight behind Gail is where I saw the baby deers frolicking this morning. And I'm still hoping to see them. That's what I do during Zazen. (laughs) Now you know. So Buddha also taught, or the principle of this practice is that we do it together. We do it in groups. 
And these groups come together like this for a session for a while, and we go back out. Or groups come together for Ango, which Reverend Gyozan just finished, a practice period intensive where he was the head monk, and then he took a half an afternoon off before coming here to be Tenzo. I thank you. <laughs> gathered together for that from all parts of the world, just like we do from all over. So they gather together and then disperse. So Buddha said, when four people gather together, that's a community. So a vihara. If four people are together, that's a safe practice container. And it can come together for a little while, it can come together for a long time and put down deep roots, or it can just come together during the rainy season, which is how they used to do it. But Buddha wasn't... Hermit practice is good, wandering around, but it's not meant to be the sole practice. We start to cook in this dialogue. Even though it's silent, we're in dialogue all the time, aren't we? The bodies are communicating all the time. So as few as four, and it can come into being temporarily or it can come into being forever. So part of what we enter into is the original session. We're part of something that's been going on for a long time. And our efforts, this is a hard one, I, I'm not sure. I think it's because people are extremely responsible feeling, but our efforts are also our responsibility for all directions, all times. Our effort will have an impact in the future and in all directions. This is part of why we, excuse me, part of why I do this. <laughs> we, do, we know all of our actions have an impact in subtle and often very strong ways. And each of these practice communities, from a vihara of four to a session of whatever number, to a practice period of a number, to a monastic community, they describe the monastic communities in the old sutras of 1,500 people, 2,000 people. All of them are a Dharma gate. This is a Dharma gate. And we all came in through that Dharma gate. The Dharma gate, as Dogen Zinji says, of repose. Dar- Dharma gate of refuge. He even says bliss. Dharma gate of refuge and repose and bliss. We come through that gate. So this dialogue, this conversation that Dogen Zinji is trying to have with us is... Um, partly based on another conversation he was having with um, a Chinese master of a few generations before Dogen, because it's really good in our practice to align with others. So in our practice here, we align our bodies. We kind of align our minds. We align with um, the mood in the room we walk into. That's why we say, you know, Try to assess if the people you're with assume that they want to be quiet, so we align with that stillness and quiet. And then that flavors our own inner experience. So it's very good to align with others, and sometimes we call this um, plagiarism, copying. So Dogen Zindi plagiarized a lot. They didn't call it that. 
no one had such a sense of ownership of words and phrases. So Dogen Zinji used an older text, which is very similar to this, to write the Fukanza Zengi. And the differences in it are super interesting. I'm just, I'll just tell you two, just one, really. So this ancient master, also a Mahayana teacher, great vehicle teacher, We've just read the first paragraph of Fukanza Zengi. This is how um, Sui Tzu started his. It also has many instructions about body and nose and alignment and sitting, but this is how he starts it. The bodhisattva who studies wisdom should first arouse the thought of great compassion, make the extensive vows, and then carefully cultivate Samadhi, deep meditation. Vowing to save sentient beings, they should not seek liberation for themselves alone. Okay? So Dogen Zenji's writing is in dialogue with that. And it's beautiful. We could live our whole lives with this practice. The bodhisattva who studies wisdom, prajna, should first arouse the thought of great compassion, bodhicitta, the thought of awakening for all beings. And then make the extensive vows to save all beings, to purify the mind, to uh, live for the benefit of all beings. Make the extensive vows and then carefully cultivate samadhi. That's a lot of work, actually. (laughs) Sometimes people spend years trying to replicate this practice making many vows, making many um, efforts to cultivate samadhi. So sometimes this is interpreted as, I can't really um, realize zazen until I've worked really, really hard. Okay, So Dogen Zenji is in dialogue with a statement, that statement. And some of you have this memorized. And that first paragraph that... Dogen Zenji brings to us instead says now you remember right you have to first arouse compassion make extensive vows and cultivate samadhi okay Dogen says the way is basically perfect and all pervading how could it be contingent upon practice and realization the dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled what need is there for concentrated effort Indeed, the whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from you, right where you are. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? So do you see who he was talking to? He was talking to someone about this. And now we're partners to both sides of the conversation because we're human beings and we have both sides, hopefully. We, we, I'm sure most of us have the side of um, compassion is arising and I'm going to have to work really hard to make it um, be a real meditation practice. Most of us have that idea in there somewhere. But we also hopefully have this other seed, which is the Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. What need is there for concentrated effort? The whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Right? Isn't that nice? Everything's free. 
Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? That's, that is in dialogue. Many, many sentences in here are in dialogue with earlier great Zen masters of our school. And that particular one is um, in dialogue with the very famous sixth ancestor. So the sixth ancestor, Bodhidharma, and then there are five more, and then the sixth ancestor after Bodhidharma in China, Huinang, was very important in our school, super important. And in fact, uh, I, I went to his monastery in China some years ago, and it's very moving. They have his Platform Sutra carved in stone and marble tablets all around the um, temple. And so I bought that makugyo there at the Sixth Ancestors Temple. Isn't that nice? He didn't make it. <laughs> but it's made in his honor. So the Sixth Ancestors is very important for us for many reasons, but one is that um, uh, between the dull and the sharp-witted, there's no distinction. Between people who can read and people who can't read, there's no distinction. And our sixth ancestor was very wholehearted, Wei-Nung, um, but he couldn't read, hadn't, didn't have education. Education was hard to get in the world at that time. It was rare, it was valuable, and we take it for granted, but we're, we're lucky. So he didn't have access to that kind of education, but he was very sincere. He was taking care of his family, usually they say his mother, and so he was selling firewood. He would gather up like here, he'd go out into the forest and gather up wood and bring it into the city and sell it to people. That's what he was doing. And he was in the city, standing there, hoping to sell some firewood to take home and buy food and rice for his family. And uh, another um, sincere monk came through chanting the Diamond Sutra. And he heard the Diamond Sutra, and our wonderful Tanto just taught a class on the Diamond Sutra. Thank you so much. It's very important teaching in our school. And he heard this, and he heard one, one sentence, and it really intrigued him. And he went up to the scholar who was chanting and asked him how he could learn more about this one sentence. And the scholar pointed him to this direction and said, go study with the this other ancestor, whom we now call the fifth ancestor. So go study with fifth ancestor. And he went up. The line that he heard was, you should raise a mind that abides nowhere. So what does it mean, a mind that abides nowhere? He heard that as part of his conversation and wanted to know more about how you raise a mind that abides Nowhere. So he went up to the fifth ancestor's temple, and which has also been rebuilt in China, and it's very beautiful. We went there, and he couldn't read. So, but the the fifth ancestor saw he had the spark, and wanted to protect the spark. So he sent him to the rice pounding shed. Said, just go there and work on pounding rice. That's all you need to clarify your understanding. He didn't say that out loud, but that's what he felt. Just go there and pound rice. And actually, uh, we went to the place, that little shed where 
the pounding of the rice by the sixth ancestor hap- happened, and the stone is really worn out now. And Tenshin Roshi was there, and he bowed 108 times to the stone where the sixth ancestor pounded rice. And he was crying. I was really hot. (laughs) I remember that very clearly. Um, And the rest of us circumambulated around the rice pounding. (coughs) So the sixth ancestor still couldn't read, but one day he heard other people, other monks in the monastery, reciting this poem. And the poem had been written by the head monk, and not as good as our head monk. The uh, teacher, the fifth ancestor, had said, uh, all right, I'm sort of getting ready to pass on um, responsibility and recognize a successor. So all of you write a poem, and I'll judge you. And so all the rest of the monks knew, felt, believed, had the opinion that the head monk would be would write the best poem, so they didn't compete. So the head monk wrote a poem, and the teacher said, oh yes, that's excellent, have it pasted somewhere on the pillar. So it was pasted on one of the pillars. And it said, basically, the mind is like a jewel mirror, constantly brush it clean. And so all the monks were going around reciting that, and eventually, in the rice-pounding shed, the our sixth Hui Nung heard this and said, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so he asked somebody who could write to write down his poem, which was basically um, no mind, no mirror, no need to brush, nothing to brush clean. So he had that written down and pasted on the pillar. And the fifth ancestor walked by and saw this and knew that Hui Nung, he knew exactly who it was, and knew that Hui Nung was ripe. And so he said, take that down. So he took it down and destroyed that one, and then called Hui Nung to him in the, at midnight. Am I talking too softly? No. You're just rubbing your ear? Yeah. Okay. I have to interpret these signals. We're in conversation here. Yeah. <laughs> and called him into his chambers at midnight, gave him a robe and a bowl and sent him off to practice in the world. And then the uh, head monk succeeded to the fifth ancestor and that temple thrived. It's still a very important temple. It became a very important center of teaching. But Hui Nung went to the south and opened up his own temple. So that's what Dogen means when he says, who could believe in a means to brush it clean? <clears throat> he has us in dialogue with Shakyamuni Buddha and his original enlightenment. And in this, he has us in dialogue with Hui Nung, the sixth ancestor. This is our practice. And yet, Dogen goes on to give us precise instructions on how to sit, out of compassion, and how to... Um, compose our bodies in order to handle this original awakening that we already have. The body must be ready to handle this. 
the last story that in the the last reference in the in the um, text is about the dragon. I really want to talk about the dragon again. Um, Because the dragon, the story of the dragon, before I do the story of the dragon, there's another piece of Dogen Zenji's dialogue that I thought you might um, find interesting. In the instructions, this is from Dogen's dialogue with himself. So first he wrote one version, and then he wrote at least two more versions, you know, refining it for the audience, refining it for people, out of compassion. And in the very first version that he wrote, he says a little bit more about one of our postures. And people from time to time say, they, they say this at the Ferguson unit. And again, it was so nice in your talk, Peaceful Forest, when you talked about the fact that this dialogue is also going on with the Sangha at the Ferguson unit, and that they're caught by this, they're intrigued by this writing. So in the first version, Dogen says, your ears should be in line with your shoulders and your nose in line with your navel. Place your tongue against the front of your palate and close your lips and teeth. The eyes should remain slightly open in order to prevent drowsiness. If you attain samadhi with the eyes open, it will be the most powerful. In ancient times, there were monks eminent in the practice of meditation who always sat with their eyes open. More recently, the Chan master Fa Yun Yong Tung criticized those who sit in meditation with their eyes closed, likening their practice to the ghost cave of the Black Mountain. Surely this has a deep meaning known to those who have mastered meditation. I thought you would like to know something more <laughs> about why we keep our eyes open, because if you meditate, when we meditate with our eyes closed, we're like sitting in a ghost cave of the Black Mountain. <laughs> but he took that out. So he took that out and just says, eyes should always remain open. So I think that, you know, these being able to follow somebody's way of thinking and reflected in their writing is very beautiful. We can watch what he thought were the essential points that we should focus on and not get distracted by thinking of that we're sitting... I shouldn't get distracted by thinking I'm sitting in a black ghost cave with my eyes closed. Although it does feel like that. (laughs) Everything goes dark. So in dialogue with himself in dialogue with us, in dialogue with Shakyamuni Buddha and all of the ancestors. That's what this is, and that's what we are invited to participate in. The dragon, the dragon, don't be suspicious of the true dragon, is the story of, um, what's his name again? Sui Tzu, and it's in the Shin Tzu Roku. Impressed? 
It's, it's an you know one one wants to honor people by remembering their names and honor ancestors by remembering their names. Did did those of you who haven't done it before like chanting the women's names this morning? Yes. Isn't it powerful? Yeah. When I told when I was in uh, Japan a little earlier this year and met with this very eminent, um, the most senior female monk in Japan. Uh, Aoyama Roshi, and I told her that we've been chanting the women's ancestors' names. And she was, you know, surprised because she spent her entire practice life only chanting the traditional lineage, which is all the male ancestors. So I told her we were doing that. And, stuff. and then she said, is Ryonin on it? And I said, yes. <laughs> so Ryonin is one of the names that we mentioned, and she was a very, very, very powerful nun. I'll tell that story another time, but she didn't hesitate for a second. So it's she. When I said women ancestors, she said, "Is Rion in on it?" So it just shows how close to the mind are encouraging ancestors, the people we refer to. They're right there, right there for her. So this story by that is recorded by Sui Tzu um, tells about a, another person who. Um, really liked dragons, had polished, had uh, carved dragons and dragon paintings, and took very good care of them. He loved dragons. Do any of you have a spirit animal that you really like? Mm-hmm. A few nodded heads. Mm-hmm. What's yours, Wu? Tiger. Mm, very powerful animal. Are you the year of the tiger? I am, and today's my birthday. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Voo, Tiger Voo. Happy birthday to you. How auspicious. Yeah. Tiger. Anybody else have a spirit animal? No? Deborah? Screech Owl. Screech Owl. Also powerful. Mm-hmm. Daniel? Cormorant. Cormorant. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Neely, have you seen that? Neely. Like Osprey? Osprey. Osprey. Ooh. <coughs> Maite, you don't have a spirit animal? Okay. Everybody is an honorary dragon. For me, it's a rabbit. Rabbit. Coming up is the year of the rabbit. The metal rabbit. No, metal rabbit was last. Metal. Just rabbit. So this ancient practitioner loved dragons and had them and polished them and collected them. People gave them to him, no doubt, and he took very good care of them. And then one day dragon going across in the sky um, decided to pay him a visit and came, put his head near the window or through the window and our friend was so surprised that he fainted. So that's the story. But let's look at that story because Dogen Zenji in his conversation with us says, do not be suspicious of that dragon. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. He's, he's 
not worried about our fear of dragons or the danger of dragons or anything like that. He says, don't be suspicious when a dragon visits you. Don't hesitate. Turn away. But also, in terms of what we're doing now, see what the dragon is up to. The dragon wants to come and converse. The dragon wants to have a dialogue and meet and see what happens in that exchange because dialogue is a time when we change if we're open to it. So the dragon is coming to say, talk with me and let's see what arises out of this. It doesn't say the, do- the dragon comes to dominate or that awakening experience comes to totally, well, it does come to totally take over. Take that back. Doesn't say that you have to be afraid of dialogue with visitors. Don't be suspicious. Just say, "Hello. What would what would you like to talk about?" Dragon, dragon. It's another dragon. So this is the invitation for us. It's about actually being willing to have a dialogue with awakening, have a dialogue with Buddha nature, have a dialogue with everything that's going on. Dogen is trying to tell us that this understanding and this um, nature is already happening for us, already within, already completely accessible. But still, it's bigger than what I think of as myself. It's bigger than the small self. We have to meet it. So for us, and especially Western-trained minds, we tend to really strongly think there's a lot going on in here, and there's a lot going on out there, and the two have a hard boundary between them. We're trained to think that way. We're trained to be aware of our impact on others as if we were here and they were over there. We're trained to think that dragons are out there and not inside. But the softening process that happens in practice is all the way to the molecular level, all the way to the molecular level. So the separation between our sense of self and everything else is more like the way a physicist sees it. It's totally, totally flowing. So where is that dragon? In some way, you could think, it's inside me and I have to have a conversation. I need to dialogue with the inner world of me. And that's true. That's also true. But it's also meeting us every moment every moment and when we go outside that gate later today everything that meets us is that dragon asking to dialogue with us and asking us to see it with respect and love it may look really scary it's a dragon head may look really unusual if it just shows us its eye. 
So it doesn't appear the way we want it to. Reality doesn't appear the way we want it to. It appears the way it is. And when we um, can relax our own point of view, we can meet this constant, constant, fresh appearance of reality. Dogen changes one other very um, significant part of the original writing that he was working with. He changes one of the instructions about practice. I won't look it up, but the um, instruction in Dogen's hands become, if you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness without delay. This is the heart of our school. Suchness is the appearance of things in their real nature, right? The way they really appear. And understanding that part of the appearance of things is our creation of it. Knowing I'm, I'm creating you as I look at you. You're creating me as I look at you. Things are such in this way. And so if we want to practice suchness, start right now. Start with absolutely everything that appears. Oh, the co-created reality is appearing right in front of me. It's a dragon. It's bamboo. It's a problem. It's a solution. I loved Peaceful Forest talk about problems. I thought that was just amazing. Um, seeing a problem. How did you say it? I loved it so much I let it go into my molecules and forgot it. <laughs> well, maybe uh, it's important to pick it's important to pick the correct problem. We have a choice about what problems we might select. And uh, that's one point. And then another point is that the practice or the art Arises in the inter- arises in the relationship between the problem and the solution. What? <laughs> you want me to start at the beginning? No. Uh, so I'll say it the other way. If um, the practice or the art arises at the meeting of the problem and the solution, Hmm. and um, one of the most important parts in this in this activity is careful consideration of the problem. One can say, one could say that in this dynamic of problem and solution, that the that the uh, problem that that the solution is actually contained within the problem, and by 
looking deeply into the problem, that deep looking enables the solution to emerge. Thank you. So this is our... Could you rotate it around so it goes that way and people can see? Oh, it's very... Oh, good. Everybody's waving. You guys can all wave. (laughs) 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 So this is our last official meeting together. Oh, that's so nice. Tim, wave. (laughs) Miss Kent. And Tricia. (laughs) Is there anything that you here in the room would like to bring up as part of our dialogue together before we break? We know it's your birthday, Blue, so that's good. Anybody else's birthday? Did anyone else have a birthday this week? Unusual, statistically speaking. (laughs) Shashi. Oh, Shashi, that's right. Shashi, in our discussion, we talked a bit about energy, and she reminded me that we talked about it in a way that would be nice to share. And the um, just the part that I will briefly share is that the energies of our so-called emotional life, energy of anger, fear, greed, um, disgust, all those things that are energetic are the same energy as your life force that propels you to do good. It's the same energy. And in Buddhist teachings, the same energy of when we want to practice, that says take the vows and purify and uh, um, uh, t- take the vows and then cultivate samadhi intensively. That's a lot of energy. But if we think that that kind of energy can't get started until we've clarified all of our negative karma, which often people might think. I have to get rid of all this anger before I can start doing good. That is not what Dogen Zenji and not what um, Buddha would say, because it's the same life force. You don't want to cut your one's life force off, then you, we wouldn't have the energy to respond to the world in the way it needs us. It's the same energy. So they parallel the three of the three pure precepts, I vow to um, do no harm, I vow to do all good, I vow to clarify the mind. Those are three pure precepts. Dogen changed them to, I vow to um, cultivate, what what did he say? Embrace and sustain. Embrace and sustain all good. I, I I vow to embrace and sustain right conduct, I vow to embrace and sustain all good, and I vow to embrace and sustain all beings. Those take a lot of energy. And the energy of anger is transformed, it's the same energy as the energy of not doing harm. And the energy of 
Greed is the exact same energy of doing good. And the energy of um, uh, purifying the mind or benefiting all beings is the same as as the incredible energy that churns around in delusion. Isn't that interesting? As part of our teaching? So there's a deep understanding of physical energy in our teaching. And it doesn't... Some, anyway, we use the energy. We find the energy, welcome the energy, and it's like a dragon. It's a dragon that you have all this energy, and then in the context of Sangha especially, we need each other to understand this powerful energy and to learn to let it come up in a different way. Will there be mistakes? Yes. But that's will there be problems? Yes. But the answer is within the problem. How do I handle this energy? Oh, in dialogue. Thank you, Shashi. Gail, could you turn the camera around? Thank you, Mark. And could you speak up? They're waving right back at you. Oh, thank you, Brad. Um, you, you mentioned that. Where are you going, Gyoza? And what are you going to do there? <laughs> thank you. You mentioned the other Roshi that we're in constant conversation, everything all around us, all the time. So, um, could you speak more specifically about how you handle it when you're having a conversation with something you something or someone you don't like or that you find very difficult? What do you do? Um, many things. I try to find the the root of nature in that force. Mm-hmm. I try to think, what can I learn from it mm-hmm. or them? Uh, I try to forgive myself for my shortcomings and forgive them or, you know, or it and also welcome it and say, this is a great Dharma cake for me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I cry mm-hmm. and sometimes I'm happy. Wonderful. I am so difficult. uh, How did you phrase it? Difficult conversations? Yeah. Contact with people or conversations that are difficult. Difficult elements that are difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, that having a conversation with the meeting difficulty is um, a daily affair. It's pretty much frequent because this is the world we live in. And having conversations with the the way people drive is fine. (laughs) 
all these situations. It's not just with people. Dialogues with those bricks that are popping up. I love them. So we have to respect those bricks because the trees are pushing them right up out of the ground and we're going to have a dialogue with them. We already started with a dialogue, didn't we? Mary Carol and Mark and I were talking with the bricks and Kent. Yeah. So where did you come from? And what do you want us to do about you? Um, Are you having the problem or am I having the problem? I'm the one who's going to trip on you. Oh, I don't want you to trip. Okay, take me out and relevel me. Um, people are similar, you know. I'm the one who's having the problem. I'm the one who's feeling the problem. They're fine. They're just telling me something I'm having a problem with. So a big part of it is recognizing our own sensitivity and our own, um, my own need to learn from this situation. It's, it's easy to have the problem be out there, but there isn't a problem. It's like here. I'm the one who's having... I'm the, I'm the problem having the problem. So how do I handle it? Yeah, it depends on how open I am to that particular understanding. Um, what are the kind of problems... Did we have any problems this week? No problems. We made it to the Zendo on time. Yeah. So the rain put out the incense. The rain put out. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's such an important question about having difficult conversations, but our practice or difficult problems with humans, they seem to be the biggest challenge, right? Um, I, uh, the, the solutions are so simple and so various, but for me, my, my vow is to try to open up to what's happening in here and be willing to be part of the problem instead of projecting it out there. One of my biggest challenges is, is my family, because they don't necessarily believe I'm right. so I get lots of uh, information about my mistakes when I'm with the family (laughs) and you can't argue with your family you know they don't they 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 are right so that's my 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 big practice you guys some of you know this already but when I go to the family it's one of the major trainings of my life so I was in uh was cooking. I always cook over Thanksgiving. I have an assigned bunch of things to cook for the family, and there was this cab- cupboard door behind me, and my and my beloved family member said um, very intensely, "You shouldn't. I won't do it like they did it, but you shouldn't leave that cabinet door open. People will bump their heads. Of course, they'd have to be this tall, but people will bump their heads." And I said. Mm. But I got a little defensive, but still, very softly, I said, I don't remember opening that cupboard. (laughs) And finally, after a while, the family member said, oh, yeah, I opened it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I deal with the most challenging conversations with the people I love the most. It's that I just try to stay not defensive. Permeable. Is that okay? 